Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, how to spot the perfect lawyer. The difference between a good business lawyer and a great business lawyer is the good business lawyer says, here's 100 things that could happen to you if you sign this document. The great business lawyer says, all right, now let's navigate through some of those things. Let's think of the plan B. What are the real ramifications? How likely is this clause ever to even kick in? If you're a regular listener of our show, podcast, you know that we feature Andrew Sherman, our guest here in the studio with the non-billable consult. One of the things that we try to do, what's working in Washington, as you know, is prepare people for changing their careers, advancing their careers. And speaking as a former attorney myself, there are a few roles in a business growth that are as important to fill well than to have a good attorney. So we're really happy to have Andrew as a regular contributor. We wanted to get him in the studio today to talk about the non-billable console a bit and the role of an attorney in helping entrepreneurs grow businesses. Andrew, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Dean. (laughs) I've been wanting to say that all morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're referencing my Dean gig over at Marymount. Thank you for giving that props. I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. It's conclusive proof that you too can escape being a billable consult. But more seriously, Andrew, um, you and I both practice law. Uh, we've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs in our various roles over the years. Why is it important for an entrepreneur to really have a good legal counsel? God, thank you for asking that. You know, as I think about 33 years of practice and I think about some of the people that, you know, we interact with regularly, there's certain common characteristics, I think, that a lawyer dedicated to representing entrepreneurs has. I mean, that that keen sense of business knowledge, the understanding of the entrepreneurial mindset and the challenges day to day that an entrepreneur faces. And you have to bring a lot more than your wallet muscle to the table. You've got to bring your brain. You've got to bring your heart. You've got to have a lot of empathy and understanding. And it's a whole different practice. And so if I were an entrepreneur today choosing a lawyer, I'd want to make sure that this person not only has a mastery of the law, but DC's filled with people with a mastery of the law, but that they understand my challenges, how I think, what I'm up against, Thursday night sweating out the ability to make payroll on Friday. You know, these are very real issues for entrepreneurs. And I I really do feel badly if an entrepreneur is is matched with a lawyer that has that Fortune 500 mindset, or even just a non-business mindset, because I I just think at some point there will be a disconnect. You know, there's a lot more to representing entrepreneurs than just filling out forms or pulling something off your computer. Well, I mean, that's right. At the end of the day, if all you're really doing is just telling somebody what the rules are, you're not telling anybody much of anything. Exactly. And there's also, I think there's a real demand, there always has been, but it's probably even more prevalent than ever, is that you've got to bring some value add to the table. You can't just, you know, I mean, imagine a conversation between you and I, you're the hypothetical entrepreneur, and you come to me and I say, I draft the best shareholder agreements in the city. I mean, what does that even mean? It means you draft the best shareholders agreements in the city. Yeah, I mean, you know. It doesn't mean you understand the context of why it matters. It doesn't mean you understand the context or what kind of co-founder disputes may come up or how those documents will have to evolve in the event of investors coming in. We, we were raised, I mean, our early years as lawyers in the mid-80s, having a good document was enough. That was a sufficient value proposition. Yeah. We never thought that we'd be asked about other things or introductions that could be made or changes, suggested changes to the client's business model or any number of ways these days that we can add value to, to increasing the chances that the company will survive and thrive. It's funny that you frame it that way because I think that it's not just legal profession, just about every profession, every industry that I know, 
it's it's just table stakes now to be competent at the baseline activity. I don't care whether you're a really good CTO, you're a really good lawyer, you're a really good accountant, really good radio host. At the end of the day, unless you're providing something on top, uh, it doesn't. It's harder to stand out. The real value of this segment is you mean the non-billable consult. Well, of the segment and and this interview now. Okay. For those of you that are listening carefully, not just half listening, but listening carefully. Now everybody's listening. It is understanding that table stakes term because I think you nailed it. You hit it on the on the head. Understanding that there's a core set of things that you should expect from any interaction with lawyers that represent entrepreneurs, but then to know, to ask, well, what else can you bring to the table? What other things can I expect out of this? Because otherwise it's just a transaction and not a relationship. And one thing I've certainly learned now at 58 is I'm just not interested in transactions. I'm interested in relationships. And there can be transactions within the relationship, but there's at the end of the day, if we can't bond, if we can't see eye to eye over what you're trying to do with your life and why you're doing it and why you started this business and where you're trying to take it, I'm just not that interested. I often find that um, entrepreneurs have a real love-hate relationship with lawyers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've experienced both. <laughs> I have too. Yes. What is it about lawyers that makes entrepreneurs so unhappy? I, I think there's a couple of pieces. There's the reality piece uh, of some lawyers who go to top schools and they've always been the smartest kid in their class, they can't help projecting a sense that I'm smarter than you or I know more than you or I'm going to talk a lot of big words now and cite a lot of statutes and impress you with that. The truth is most entrepreneurs I know, the more humble, the more basic, the more down to earth and aw shucks that you can be and if it's got to be authentic, the better the relationship. So one is maybe just a, a mindset and an emotional intelligence and a client relationship management technique that is not working for some lawyers. The second is television. You know, people's ideas about lawyers, unless they grew up with lawyers in their family, often come from television. So they think law and order and L.A. law and TV shows about lawyers and that lawyers are always litigating and arguing and advocating. And, you know, for us transactional business lawyers, sure, we advocate, but we advocate in a very different context. I've I've, to this day, have never been to court except for one traffic violation that I had the time to contest. Otherwise, I've never been to the courthouse. I've never litigated or fought with anyone in an adversarial kind of way. And we're a different breed of lawyers than people might expect when they walk into, you know, I always say I like to get my work done in a conference room, not a courtroom. It's often been said to me that um, a lawyer can either be uh, sort of a a high priest of rules and sort of stand up on Mount Olympus and say, you can't do this, you can't do that. Right. Or a lawyer can be somebody who says, well, there are, there are constraints, there are rules, you have to be aware of them. What are your business objectives and how do you work within these constraints? It always seems to me to be the big difference. It is. There's an entrepreneur in town that we both know. I won't name him just in case I don't have the right to attribute the story to him, but he tells this great story and you've probably heard him say it on different panels. And he says, look, I was going into a negotiation with a venture capital firm and my lawyer warned me of all the terrible things that were going to be in the term sheet. And I finally just said to him, OK, I get it. This is my decision, not yours. Thank you for all those warnings. Uh, I, I knew going into the meeting that there were going to be things in the term sheet I wouldn't like. And he then laid out a few explicatives that we won't say on the air, telling him basically back off. I get it. You've you've done your job warning me. And I think 
The difference between a good business lawyer and a great business lawyer is the good business lawyer says, here's 100 things that could happen to you if you sign this document. The great business lawyer says, all right, now let's navigate through some of those things. Let's think of the plan B. What are the real ramifications? How likely is this clause ever to even kick in? I mean, I hate it when younger attorneys, even those uh, on my own team, might be caught in an elongated negotiation over a clause that has an under 1% of ever triggering. Let's put our time and effort into the clause that have an 80% chance of coming alive after closing and not the 1%. And these are the kinds of, you know, just time management, priority management, communication management issues that it does take a few gray hairs, I think, before you learn. And you realize that you're either, you know, cut out to represent entrepreneurial growth companies or you're not. And there's also, I think, another issue worth talking about is just the pace and cadence. Entrepreneurs move faster. Their expectations are different. If you're not ready to get emails at 1 in the morning and answer emails at 1.15, you may not be wired for this. And now I'm talking to future lawyers or current lawyers that are thinking about it. You know, uh, big companies move at their own pace and have a different set of expectations. Uh, one of my most favorite book titles was from 40 years ago, which is A Small Business is Not a Little Big Business. A small business is not a little big business. Entrepreneurs are not just miniaturized versions of Fortune 500 companies. And they operate differently. They think differently. And we as lawyers, or frankly, if you're an accountant listening to today's show or a consultant listening to today's show, any of us providing advice into an entrepreneurial community needs to understand that entrepreneurial ecosystem. Folks can find uh, the non-billable consult on our WFAD website, or they can find it attached to many of our shows and podcasts. Andy, uh, why'd you start doing it? What's what's uh, What stands out for you as the most um, useful content you've done so far? Well, since this is a three-hour segment. Um, <laughs> well, it's not. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I'll just very, very briefly. I mean, I dropped out of college in the late 70s and I became an entrepreneur and I was an unsuccessful entrepreneur for a couple of years before I returned to college. My father, may he rest in peace, tried many, many businesses that did not succeed. I had the epiphany when I went back to school that my life should be devoted to the support of entrepreneurs. I decided I my dad was not successful as an entrepreneur, and I was not successful directly as an entrepreneur, and so it was time. I wanted to be part of the ecosystem, but I had the epiphany that I would be an advisor to the ecosystem. And so whether it's teaching, whether it's writing the books that I've written, uh, whether it's uh, in the practice of law and on the segments that I've been doing, uh, the non-billable consult, my job is to share information that will be helpful to entrepreneurs and business owners and managers and to get that information out as efficiently as I can and then let the ecosystem benefit from it. I think it's a great life lesson. Non-billable consult, we're happy to have it as part of the What's Working in Washington program. Andrew Sherman, it's great to have you with us and thanks for keeping up your hard work helping entrepreneurs here in the DC region. Great to be here. And now, What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. I bet you haven't heard the name Bernard Brew. But in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, he was known as America's troubleshooter. Presidents of both parties brought him in to solve the hard problems. At the breakout of World War I, President Wilson pulled that millionaire 
out of the stock exchange and into the government for the sole purpose of converting us from a civilian economy into a wartime economy. Bernard Brew was successful. At the end of the war in Vienna, the Germans noted that it was our economic output as much as our military output that ultimately defeated them. On the way back from that trip to Vienna, Bernard Baru sat down with the president. He understood that a newer war was coming. In fact, he had been called pro-German when he told the British and French that the reparations were going to result in another war. He wanted to make sure that his successors were prepared for that war. So, together, they built what would become the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, ICAF. ICAF was designed to teach ordinary military and civilian leaders how to turn civilian economies into wartime economies, how to do logistics on a global scale, how to take ordinary people and to turn them into weapons of war, not for the fighting, but for the building. ICAF went on to become so successful that it was able to take ordinary soldiers and turn them into great leaders. One such soldier was Dwight Eisenhower. In the mid-30s when he attended ICAF, he was only a major, but by the time World War II ended, he was the supreme allied commander. It was his leadership and expertise in organizing all of our allied countries, our logistics, and our economy that ultimately allowed us to win the Second World War. Sometimes success is about going to where success has already been found. Today, we have a military-industrial complex. What we don't have is the preparations for the next war, the cyber war. To address this, the Navy is going back to its roots. It's building a Navy university dedicated on a joint military level to training airmen, sailors, soldiers, and Marines how to fight cyber wars. So when there's a cyber attack, we can defend ourselves in the cyber realm. Just like ICAF taught Eisenhower how to marshal the resources of war, the new Navy University will develop leaders that are adaptable and agile to fight in the cyberspace. That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, the Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Salesforce Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.